0: Hear God's word from Mark chapter 8, verse 22, through chapter 9, verse 1. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. And he said to them, truly I say to you, There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Thanks be to God. When you think of a king, you may think of Charles III. You may think of power. You may think of great displays of royalty nobility and I think of the most incredible diamond that I've ever seen in the Tower of London it belongs to the royal family the disciples finally understand today that Jesus is king and Jesus is going to totally transform what it means to be a king And how he explains his kingship to them. He's turning the definition of kingship upside down. The disciples, and if we're honest, we too in our lives, we expect that Jesus is going to bring us worldly triumph. But Jesus tells them something totally baffling. That the kingdom of God. And the king of this kingdom of God that is This kingdom that is coming in power, its king must suffer, be rejected, and die. As I alluded to earlier, this is a turning point in the book of Mark. This is the day when Jesus' identity is finally known and stated by the disciples, and then how Jesus fleshes out the implications of that is not what they expected. But today we're going to look at the blind man's healing. We're going to look at the identification of the Messiah, and then we're going to look at the truth of the Messiah. The blind man's healing, the identification of the Messiah, and the truth of the Messiah. Let's look first at the blind man's healing. Let's jump in because this is going to help us understand the identity of the Messiah and then the truth about him that Jesus tells them. This blind man's healing is very much like a lot of Jesus' healing so far. He's healed countless times. In fact, there are places where Mark has to simply summarize and say, and he also healed all these others as well. And it's very similar in these ways Jesus' reputation precedes him. And these people bring others to him, brings specifically this blind man to him because this man is in need, and and they know Jesus can do something about it. And Jesus responds as he always does, compassionately, And immediately, specifically, his touch this time is once again powerful. And as awkward as this may sound, his spit is powerful as it indicates that everything that comes from the mouth of Christ has the power to change a life. And again, Jesus commands silence. This time he commands the man not even to enter the village, don't even go back into the village, because in the past, when Jesus has told people to to be quiet They didn't obey, and they went and told freely. So he says, don't even go to the village. Just go home. But there's some strange elements about this healing story. Some things that we really need to focus in on today. First of all, it appears that Jesus failed in his first attempt. Did you notice that? The blind man, first time Jesus healed him, Jesus says, do you see anything? And he responded, I see people, but they look like trees walking. In In other words, I can't really see clearly. In other words... You kind of healed me, but also kind of didn't. And another strange element is that there is no mention of the people's or the disciples' response to the miracle. And there's always a response given, almost always. So let us focus in first on what seems to be an incomplete healing the first time. We'll call it a partial healing, and we see this in verses 23 and 24 The man says, after Jesus touches him, he lays his hands on him. He spits on his eyes, lays his hands on him. The man says, I see people, but they look like trees walking. So Jesus had to again go back in verse 25. It says, then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. Mark is making it very clear. This is a two-stage healing. And only in verse, the end of verse 25 do we see the completion of that healing. And Mark says, emphasizes this three times in verse 25. Look at how he puts it. And he opened his eyes. That's, that's one. And his sight was restored. That's two. And he saw everything clearly. That's three. Mark is making it very clear. He can see clearly now. And when we see that strange element, it's going to tell us to keep reading. Because although it seems like Jesus has failed and not done it well the first time, he had to give it a second try, we're going to realize this is actually a very important framework and pattern for what Jesus is doing in his whole ministry through the book of Mark. The fact that there's no mention of the people's or the disciples' response to the miracle makes us wonder, is the response coming? And that is exactly what it ought to do. It seems to be disconnected, a randomly inserted story in the midst of the disciples seeing who Jesus is. But both of these things point us to the context for the answer. Because this healing, this two-stage healing, is an illustration of what is happening in chapter 8, verses 27 through 30. And it's also going, it's a parallel in two ways, of verses 27 through 30, but it's also a parallel of a greater magnitude. And we're going to look at both of those as we move forward here. You'll remember the disciples in chapter 8, verse 18 They're blind. Jesus says to them, Do you have eyes and not see? Maybe the blind man here represents the disciples, and we'll find that in fact he does. And here, as Mark is starting the next big section of his gospel, the part of the book where Jesus is journeying toward Jerusalem where he will be where he will die. The start of this next big section, Jesus is going to begin training his disciples. Much, as, much like what we saw in this very brief healing here, Jesus again laid his hands on the man. Jesus will again train his disciples. He will again teach them who he is. So let's move on and look specifically at this first parallel between the healing of the blind man, this two-stage healing, and what it, how it helps us understand the, the disciples' identification of the Messiah here in verses 27 through 30. There are five parallels between these two passages. At first glance, it's hard to see, but when you start tearing it apart, you see it's, it's incredible how parallel these are. Jesus said the first time he healed the blind man, do you see anything in verse 23? Do you see anything? He also asks the disciples a question. Who do people say that I am? And the blind man says, I see people, but they look like trees walking. He can see a little bit, but not clearly. And the disciples answer, they say you're John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the prophets. They get it a little bit. Jesus is a prophet at least, but he is so much more than that. There is more to behold. So Jesus, with the blind man, lays his hands again on the man's eyes. And Jesus a second time asks the disciples, but who do you say that I am? And then the parallels get even stronger. Jesus says to the... Mark tells us about the blind man. He opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And then Peter proclaims in parallel, you are the Christ. A clear declaration, a clear vision of who Jesus is. Peter can see clearly in comparison, especially to those who thought Jesus was just John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the prophets. And then lastly... Jesus charges both of them to be quiet. Don't tell anyone. The people in verses 27 through 30, the people, Jesus says, who do they, who do the people say that I am? They kind of see who Jesus is. They kind of see like the blind man. Jesus is not just a prophet, however, and the identity of who Jesus is has been a huge question throughout the book so far. Who is this Jesus? The disciples even said, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Who is Jesus has been on the forefront of Mark's mind as he's written. And Jesus is finally opening up that question. Who am I? Who do they say I am? And who do you say I am? So far in Mark, Jesus has been called a lot of things. He's been called teacher. He's been called blasphemer. He's been called the carpenter. He's been called defiled. He's been called out of his mind. He's been called in league with Satan. And he's been called a resurrected John the Baptist. But these people are obviously in glaringly missing something. They are still partially blind. They see like a walking tree. What even is a walking tree? Jesus, yes, he's a prophet, but he's so much more than that. The disciples, however, here we see the more full healing when we look at the disciples. They have the more complete healing because Peter is representing the disciples as he speaks here in these verses. They see that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. So Jesus says to them, who do you? He really says in a good southern translation, who do y'all say that I am? And Peter responds on behalf of the disciples and he says, you are the Christ. The disciples have been in this holding cell so far in the book of Mark. We've not gotten a clear read on whether or not they really get who Jesus is. They've been amazed and they've been in awe, but they've never stated their faith in Christ. Jesus has told parables of great spiritual truths and the disciples followed up with dense questions. Now, others have come close in the book of Mark to seeing who Jesus is. And in fact, others do understand who Jesus is because God the Father himself calls Jesus my beloved son in chapter one. The demons get it regularly. They've called him the Holy One of God. They've called him Son of the Most High God. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. And the Syrophoenician woman, a Gentile, the unclean woman, calls him Lord. And now, Peter calls him the Christ, the Messiah. This is it. This is true. This isn't just a partial understanding. It's not partial blindness anymore. This is Jesus. He's not just a prophet. He is the Messiah. Jesus isn't just someone who communicates God's word like the prophets did. Jesus is God's word. And as the word Messiah means, he is the anointed one chosen by God to be king, the one who fulfills the lineage of the kings of Israel. He is the great king on the throne. What a statement it is that Peter says you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. Mark, at the very beginning, his very first verse in the book, he says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ son of God. Mark has been setting us up to see in this moment who Jesus is. In his glory and in his power. So the question we have to ask ourselves. Who do you say that Jesus is? Is he just a prophet like Muhammad or like Joseph Smith? Or like anyone else that people want to follow, we have all kinds of prophets of new religions today, but they don't meet in churches. They meet in all other kinds of places. Is Jesus just a teacher with good morals that we should probably follow, but without any power over your life? Is he your Sunday morning or in our case, your Sunday evening hobby? Is he relegated to a corner of your life without any power over the the rest of your life or the rest of your week? No, Jesus will never just be an expert for his people that you can consult when you want. He will not be relegated to a corner. If he is not breaking into every uncomfortable corner of your heart and schedule and wallet, then I fear that you don't yet see him for who he is as the Christ. don't want you to see him as just a walking tree. Christ has the power to strip greed from our transactions. Christ has the power to remove grudges and heal relationships with friends and family and coworkers. Christ has the power over your entire budget. Christ has the ability to steer your schedule and to redefine Convenience. Because we realize that there is nothing better than being with him. Better is one day in his courts than a thousand elsewhere. He has the power to remove your sin. He has the power to restore you to relationship with the father. Jesus is the Christ and it matters for everybody. Even you and even me. That's the identity of the Messiah. So at this point in Mark's book, we would expect that now that Christ has been set up on the pedestal, finally the people, the disciples at least, get who he is. This is the moment we expect momentum to start building, the kingdom to start growing, Jesus to ascend to the throne very quickly. But the first thing Jesus tells them about his kingship is that he's going to suffer and die. It is the very opposite of what we want and of what the disciples were expecting. So while the statement of Peter's is true, we realize actually Peter is like stage one in the healing process of his eyes being opened. He does see that Jesus is the Christ, but he does not yet see the fullness of what that means. It's going to take Jesus more teaching to show them To get them to understand who he is and what the nature of the king is. So while Peter representing the disciples was the representation, the parallel of complete healing in verses 27 through 30. In the big picture of Mark's story and from verses 22 through chapter 9 verse 1. In the greater picture of our passage, Peter and the disciples actually are the ones who have the partial understanding. Peter and the disciples are actually the ones who still they see Jesus, but he still just looks like a walking tree because they expect him to be some great king who's going to rule over this earth right now with military power and nationalistic power against the Pharisees and Rome and the Sadducees and all their other enemies. They don't quite yet get the nature of who this king is. They have much to learn about the nature of the kingdom of God. And of their king, Jesus. And so Jesus, once again, has to command silence. Now, this is good and bad. Because every time Jesus commands silence, it's after somebody gets it. So the disciples get it. But it's also bad because Jesus knows that he's going to have to teach the disciples more so the disciples aren't yet there. So he says, be quiet. Don't tell anybody about it yet because you still have a long way to go in understanding. Mark says, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. He is the Christ. But do do the disciples yet get that he is also the son of God? He's going to teach them that. And he begins to teach them these truths right out the gate. He begins here in verse 31. Mark even says, and he began to teach them. Now, Jesus doesn't like to use the title Christ because it can be misused and misrepresented. And in fact, this word Christ only comes up in chapter 9 in kind of a brief passing. And it doesn't really come back into the forefront until chapter 14 when Jesus is about to be crucified. Instead, Jesus prefers the title Son of Man. You may remember the Son of Man and its implications. We'll get into it in more detail next time we come to this passage. But Jesus says the Son of Man must suffer many things. So here we are moving into talking about the truth of who the Messiah is, because we want a king who wins. We want a king who's going to reign and bring us with him in glory. In fact, the disciples even said, can we sit on your right hand and your left hand because we want to be exalted with you. They missed it. But it's natural to want a king who wins, and Jesus is about to teach them something that is unnatural, or should I say supernatural, about his kingship. And it's going to take him chapters for the next few chapters. Mark lays this out. Jesus intentionally is guiding them so that they might see and understand even more fully who Jesus is. That he is the Christ and the son of God and the son of man and the divine God man. And he teaches them this. First of all, he is a king with great opposition. There are great forces against Jesus. The disciples expected this moment, a superhero like conquering enthronement of Jesus. Because now that they know who he is, he's going to sweep in and and take evil out. So it seems. But instead, Jesus says, actually, the elders and the chief priests and the scribes are all set against me. The elders and the chief priests and the scribes. This is the trifecta. This is to place Jesus against the entire religious institution and the entire religious institution against Jesus. There is not going to be a coronation. There's not going to be great pomp and circumstance or excitement for Jesus to ascend the throne. Instead, he will be crowned with a crown of thorns and welcomed with mockery. He's a king of great suffering, and this is by God's design. It goes back to Isaiah 3 and many other places, excuse me, Isaiah 53 and many other places in the Old Testament. Listen to what was said of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. I'm going to read you a little passage here. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced, For our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Jesus wanted his followers to get it. He's going to suffer. He's going to die. Be prepared. Jesus predicts his death three times in Mark. The next one comes in chapter 9. He says in chapter 9, verse 31, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. Jesus is trying to prepare them. And he tells them again in chapter 10, verse 34, And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. He's trying to prepare them. But Peter and the disciples, they have no frame of reference for this kind of Messiah. Because when they hear Messiah, they expect a king who ascends to the throne right now. In fact, a lot of these expectations come from extra biblical sources, sources from outside the Bible and a lot of Jewish literature that describe the Messiah in these nationalistic terms. And the strange thing is they have called Jesus the Christ in verse 29. And then as soon as the Christ starts speaking, Peter refuses to hear it and rebukes him. He does not see who Jesus is yet because he will not even listen as Jesus talks about his suffering and his death. And so he's rebuking God's plan as he rebukes Jesus there in those verses. And Jesus says, you're not setting your mind on things of God. You're setting your mind on things of man. The things of man include power and prestige and ascending the throne and great nobility and pomp and circumstance. That's what Peter expects. And Jesus says, that's not the things of God. Things of God, suffering, pain and rejection and death by the powers that be among the elders and the scribes. And so Jesus rebuked Peter in return. For Peter's good, for our good, because I know I would like Peter. I would want to demand that same thing of Jesus. I would expect the same thing from him. And so as Jesus rebukes Peter, he's rebuking all the disciples and he's rebuking me as well. Because those thoughts of demanding worldly success are in league with Satan. He says, get behind me, Satan. That's not my task. My task is to come and to suffer and to give my life. I'm not about self-promotion. I'm not about earthly reign or earthly success. I'm not about even avoiding suffering, which you and I so desperately try to do. And so we have to return to the question that we've been asking so far in Mark. Will the disciples ever get it? Will the disciples see who Jesus is? Will they be completely healed? Will they ever make it to the stage two of the healing? The answer is yes. And it's not just because we know the end of the story. It's yes because our passage actually tells us. In chapter 9, verse 1, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. They will see the kingdom. See with clarity because that's the exact same verb that the blind man used when he says, I see trees. I see people, but they're like trees walking. I see it. And Jesus says, no, you're going to see the kingdom and its power. You will be unveiled and you will see the glory of God. What exactly this means, I'm going to have to wait till next sermon. But the disciples are going to get it. And it's also not just because of chapter nine, verse one. It's because of chapter eight, verse thirty one. The disciples responded as if Jesus didn't even say this. And you and I also respond as if he didn't even say this. He says after three days, he's going to rise. After three days. Jesus is going to rise from the dead and in that is true power. And in that we will see the glory of God in its fullness because sin and death will be conquered. Who cares if the Roman government is conquered because sin is conquered when Jesus raises from the dead. Jesus is that king that will rise on the third day. Let's set our minds on things of God, not on things of man. Let's remember that our king reigns Because he rose from the dead and conquered our enemy, sin and death and Satan. Is your faith in that kind of Messiah? Or are you still expecting Jesus to make you worldly successful? Do you trust Jesus alone to conquer your enemies and your true enemies? Satan is your enemy. This generation, this world is your enemy. And the longings of our own heart can be our enemies. And Jesus is the Messiah who conquers all those. Have you surrendered control of your life and allowed him to mold you, to guide your steps, to be your comforter when everything else and everyone else has only disappointed you? He alone truly reigns. Or is your mind still set on things of man like Peter? When Jesus tells you to do something and you know when he does because he speaks it clearly by his word and then his spirit applies it to your heart and you feel convicted, do you then turn around and rebuke Jesus? Saying, no, I don't need to do that. I have a better plan. Stop thinking like man. And I say that purely out of experience and conviction. I am someone who sets my mind on things of man and I need Christ's continued teaching to remind me to set my mind on things of God. If you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, I urge you, come now and he will make you see by his spirit's work in you. And believers come to Jesus again today and before bed and when you wake up in the morning. And throughout your day tomorrow, and Tuesday, and Wednesday, and the rest of your life. Keep coming to this Messiah who reigns. Let him continue to infiltrate and take over every corner of your life. He is the anointed one appointed by God to reign as king. He can make you see. and He can make you well. And the more you see him, do you see his reign and his power grow in your life? Do you see your territory that you've been protecting to reign over yourself? Do you see that shrinking? I hope so, because I hope Christ is continuing to reign more and more over every pocket of your desires and your actions and your words and your thoughts and your time and your wallet. We want to see Jesus reign over everything. For those of you who have walked this journey longer than I have and know far better the tender compassion of our Savior, over his children's souls reflect for a minute right now when has jesus taught you when has jesus so intentionally pulled you aside and said this is what it looks like to follow me i'm a suffering king where have you learned that where did you learn that the christian life isn't a heaven stamped form of the american dream where did you learn that life is hard and that the Christian life is harder, and that that's not bad. Because our hearts then are transferred from clinging on to earthly things, and we have to cling on to heavenly blessings. That's how Jesus teaches us. When did you learn that your money and your time and your relationships are not yours? They're God's. And so we give him a whole day out of seven, We give Him a chunk of our money because that indicates that all our time is God's and that indicates that all our money is His because He reigns over everything. And so when we give, we do it admitting He's Christ. He's the King. Do you still call Him prophet or is He King? Is He your reigning and anointed King? His reign is perfect, brothers and sisters. And when the Messiah reigns, his true people obey him out of faith. Let's be people of obedience who glory in Christ alone for what he's done. Let's pray. Dear Father, we do not want to remain in darkness. We do not want to be blind. Yet so often we live like we don't see who Jesus is open our eyes to see you more clearly, open our hearts to love you more dearly, and enable our actions to follow you more nearly. Jesus is our life. Jesus is our king. Jesus reigns. These idols of ours, we ask that you would kill them tonight, tomorrow, and every day thereafter. Would you help us to see Jesus and to give him all the glory he is due? It's in his precious name we pray. Amen.